0: Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Central London service. To find out about the upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org wonderful to be with you and to uh, be here for this final week of our series uh, on the subject of awakening. Um, If you haven't been here for the rest of the series, let me just give you an idea of what we've been covering. Uh, In history, there are various times where God has called his church to awaken, where God has called his church to rededicate herself to prayer and to longing for more of his presence and power in expectation that he will do great and mighty things in our city, in our time. And there are plenty of stories throughout history of times where God has stirred the church to awaken, to commit to prayer, and the result has been large, uh, large-scale change in society, social, cultural, and spiritual renewal, people often giving their lives to Jesus in their thousands. And we are longing and hoping that God might do something similar in our day. We're not satisfied with these just being stories from the past. We want to see that happen in our time, in our city. And so what we've been doing at the beginning of 2019 is look at some of the spiritual practices that often precede a fresh new move of God like we have seen in history in the past. And we have looked at various different things. And I want to conclude the series today by looking at this story in Luke chapter 2 that we just heard so beautifully read. And the reason I want to pick this story is, well, two reasons really. Firstly, this, this sort of shows us what happens when a new move of God does come, when God breaks in to do something brand new. That was Simeon and Anna's experience here in this moment, first reason. Second reason is this, If you were to ask me, what do you want the church to look like as a result of this Awaken series? What does an awakened church look like? Or what do awakened people look like? I'd say Exhibit A, Simeon and Anna. I mean, there are very few other people I would go to that look more awakened than these guys. They embody everything we have preached on in this sermon series. And I know you probably remember every detail of every sermon that's been in the sermon series. So you don't need me to recap it. But on the off chance that you have forgotten maybe one or two details, here's what we've preached on so far. Week one, I looked at awakening faith, trusting the ancient promises of God. And Simeon exhibits this in his own uh, example. He trusted the ancient promises that God had made for Israel, the consolation of Israel, but also promises that God had made to him that didn't seem to have been coming true. Yet Simeon clung on to them, even through bleak times. Joe then, in week two, looked at devotion to prayer. And hardly anyone in scripture embodies this better, I think, than Anna, who prayed and fasted, night and day, never leaving the temple. Week three, David looked at our need to thirst for the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. We'll come back to this again um, in a bit. But actually, both Simeon and Anna exhibit this thirst brilliantly. Then I preached on hunger, on fasting as a way of embodying our prayers and crying out for God to do new things. And Anna, though she's 84 years old, she is regularly worshiping, praying and fasting. Then Lars spoke about renewal, about surrender to God, even in times that feel crushing. And we see that both in Anna, Anna and in Simeon. We'll come back to this in a minute. But Simeon is described as being righteous and devout. That is, he is proactively making himself a new wineskin, ready for the new wine God may want to pour out. And then Andy last week spoke about mission, spoke about the need to not keep secret what Jesus has done in our lives, but to shout it from the rooftops. And that's exactly what Simeon and Anna do. Simeon starts shouting so loud once he sees Jesus that actually Anna hears, and that's how she gets in on the story as well. So in many ways, these two people, Simeon and Anna, embody everything we've talked about in this series. But they also add one extra thing into the mix, which is what I want to look at today. And it's this, it's perseverance. Because I think perseverance is the thing that ties together all these other elements. If these other things like prayer and fasting and longing for the presence of God are to be of any use to us for the long term, they need to be bound together and built on a foundation of perseverance. Defined simply, perseverance is persistence in doing something despite difficulty or delay in achieving success. It's that that I want to look at today. And I want to suggest that there are two aspects of perseverance that come through strongly in Simeon and Anna's story. And they are that they were persistent and they were perceptive. So let's start with persistence. Both Simeon and Anna were persistent in their hunger for God and their devotion to prayer. The passage doesn't tell us how old Simeon was, but I think it implies that he was old. He was approaching the end of his days. We know that Anna was old. She is described as being very old, 84 years old. Um, If you're 84 in here today, you're welcome, and I'm sure you're just as useful as me, but you know, in her culture, this was very, very old. This was incredibly old, um, which doesn't reflect well on me, does it? <laughs> but uh, this was incredibly old. People often didn't even live to this old, this age in this day, yet she is, she is sustained by prayer and worship. And these two individuals have been faithfully praying for decades in advance of the coming of Jesus. Now, to many of us, that idea probably seems quite daunting. Persistence doesn't come naturally to us. I think we are largely impatient people. I don't think I'm just talking for myself there. I think we are an impatient generation. We are used to immediate answers, quick delivery. Nothing strikes fear into our hearts more than this. Like, if I just leave that there on the screen for a bit, I'll feel the stress levels rising in this room. Like, we are impatient people. A study in 2017 said that 42% of UK consumers admit to being more impatient than five years previously. I suspect that in the two years that have passed since that survey, that number has probably gone up. We are increasingly an impatient people. And the reason that the survey highlighted for this was was partly because of our over-reliance in technology, which makes us think that we should expect everything to come quickly and immediately. We are so used to getting things like that. I remember, it wasn't too long ago, and this makes me sound old. When you say, I remember the day, that makes it sound like you're very old. But I think we all remember the day when you used to order something online and think nothing about waiting for a week for it to arrive. And then companies started to offer three-day delivery. So there, that's where we set our expectations. Then Amazon Prime comes along. And it's like, we'll give it to you the next day. And now there are even services that deliver groceries within an hour. And we are getting more and more impatient. It won't be long before Amazon Prime is replaced with Amazon Preemptive, where you get deliveries of things you didn't know you needed yet. That's, <laughs> Which actually sounds like a great idea. I should, I, I patent that. That's my idea. <laughs> if the dragons are listening in to this podcast, it's my idea. You can fund me, but. We are living in times where we are growing in our impatience. And being in a city actually exacerbates that, I think. I remember when I used to visit London before I lived here, and I'd be like, chill out, people. Why are you rushing? Why are you so stressed all the time? And now I come here, and I'm that person. I'm, I'm like, oh, I missed the tube. Two minutes to wait. Why, Lord? Why?" You know, and, and you're laughing because you're that person as well, right? I was driving the other day with my daughter. She's two years old. We're sitting in the back. We're stuck in traffic. I didn't say a word. We're just driving. Well, we're not driving. That's the point. We're not moving anywhere. Suddenly out of nowhere, my two-year-old goes, come on, move. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, oh my word. Wow, you are not getting in a car with your mother again. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I, I can't claim that that was her. Actually, it was me, but I'm just very grateful I hadn't said anything else. But like, The point is, living in an impatient age and an impatient city, it does something to us, right? And that often seeps into our spiritual life. That, that impatience that gets sort of fostered in every area of our lives, it can seep into our approach to prayer. How many of us, if we're honest, have prayed for something once, twice, maybe for a week, maybe for a month, and then given up because it hasn't been delivered on the timings that we hoped for? As far as I can tell, there is nothing in Scripture that guarantees that all prayers will be answered within a set time period or your money back. Like, I don't think that's how prayer works. And yet, so many of us bring our expectations of reasonable timescales to our spiritual life and impatience seeps in. We are not good at being persistent people. And the fact is that God's timings are often very different from our timings. And part of the challenge of prayer is that we need to be willing to come back to him faithfully, repeatedly, praying persistently and trusting that his timings are better than ours. Now, this is not easy. Honestly, it's one of the biggest challenges I feel in the Christian life. I find prayer hardest at the best of times, let alone when I have to do it again and again and again on the same subjects. But actually, this isn't a new challenge. This is not just something we experience in 21st century London. The Bible recognized this has always been a challenge. So in Proverbs 13, verse 12, it says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. You know, living with that, that internal feeling of, of, of a longing that seems out of reach, that's not fulfilled for a long period of time, it can eat you up inside. It can cause us inner turmoil, and the Bible recognizes that. I don't know what you are praying for. Maybe there are things you've been praying for for weeks or months or even years. Maybe they're personal things for healing, for breakthrough, for provision. Maybe you have been crying out for revival, for God to do amazing things in this city or in this nation for years, maybe even decades. And that has been difficult for you, living with the tension of not seeing the things you've been praying for. Persistence is a challenge. Maybe you have wondered at times if your prayers are achieving anything at all. I want to encourage you keep praying. Keep praying. Don't give up. Actually, although right now your deferred hope may feel like it's making you sick, you know, once the promise gets fulfilled, once the prayers get answered, what does it say? It says it's like a tree of life that just gives you the sweetest, most nourishing fruit you can imagine. Keep going until you see that tree of life. Keep going until you get to take hold of it. Dr. A.T. Pearson writes this, From the day of Pentecost, there has not been one great spiritual awakening in any land which has not begun in a union of prayer, though only among two or three. And no such outward or upward movement has continued after such prayer meetings declined. Persistent prayer has always preceded revival, new moves of God. And those new powerful moves of God have only continued as long as prayer has continued. We need to be devoted to prayer. And God knows that persistence is hard. This is not a shock to him. Which is why when Jesus came and started teaching about prayer, one of the first and key passages or things he taught about was the parable of the, what? The persistent widow in Luke chapter 18. And in this story, it's a parable in which a widow nags an unjust judge over and over and over, until finally he gives in and gives her justice. And the point is not, well, God is like an unjust judge, so you just nag him. The point is the opposite. It's like, if even an unjust judge will give in to persistence, how much more will your loving Heavenly Father, who wants to hear your prayers and who is inclined to do good for you, how much more will he respond to persistent prayer? So Jesus taught this parable so that we should always pray and not give up. And the parable ends with this haunting question. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And that question haunts me because we get to be the answer to that question. When God comes to this church, when God comes to this city, will he find faith? Will he find us just thinking like, I gave up months ago or years ago? Or will he find us on our knees crying out in faith for him to move? The pastor and author Rick Warren uses this analogy. He says, the bigger the plane, the longer the runway. What he means is this. If you are trying to land a jumbo jet, you can't do that on a tiny patch of ground. The bigger the plane, the longer the runway needs to be for that plane to land safely. If you're like landing a biplane, sure, you can do that on a tiny patch of ground. But if you try and land a jumbo jet on a runway designed for a biplane, you're in trouble. He says the same is true of prayers. The bigger the blessing, the longer the runway. It's often the case that the biggest breakthroughs, whether for healing or provision or the turning around of a seemingly impossible situation or crying out for God to change the direction and the life of our city, these are big things that cannot come after short periods of prayer. We need to be praying again and again and again and again and again and again and again, building a long runway for those answers to land. There are things that we long to see that I suspect if we saw them on our timing rather than God's, they would not land safely because we would not be ready to receive them. And part of the challenge of persistent prayer is that it actually prepares our hearts for what God wants to do. Simeon and Anna prayed for decades. Probably Anna prayed maybe for 60 years, maybe even more than 60 years, crying out for the Messiah to come. And I don't think for a moment that was easy for her. But I don't think either of them every day were like, I just love praying. It's so easy. I've got this nailed. Like I imagine it was hard because they were crying out for their nation to be rescued. All the while, their nation was being ruled over by a brutal force, the Roman Empire. I imagine there were days when they came and they pounded the ground and they're like, come on, Lord. How long, oh Lord? I imagine there were days where they could barely even sort of stir themselves to pray the same prayer as they've been praying for decades. Persistent prayer is hard. I don't think they found it easy, and yet they kept on. And they kept on. And the result was that they got to see that ultimate tree of life, you know, God in flesh. I found Anna's story so moving. You know, she had not had an easy life. It says, she was very old and she had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. I mean, that is just heartbreaking. She had lived for decades having lost her true love, her husband. That is a horrible thing for anyone to go through. If you know people that have gone through that, or if you've experienced it yourself, you know that is a devastating thing to go through. Actually, in first century Israel, it would have been even more complicated, even more devastating This was a society where widows were the most vulnerable people in society. They would often have low hope, no security for the future. They would often find it difficult to get remarried even if they wanted to. Which is why often when we're told to care for the most vulnerable, widows are there in the list right through scripture. And yet the passage says that she never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. I don't know quite how this was the case. It's likely that somehow she'd managed to get quarters in the temple where she could stay. Some people speculate maybe her uh, husband had been a priest. We, We don't know. But there was something that for decades, something sustained her. It was prayer. And yet she lived all her days with this tension inside her of deep personal pain and anguish and also deep commitment to prayer. Maybe some of you are in that place right now. Well, you feel like you have both those things. You want to be deeply committed to prayer, and yet you feel deeply in pain yourself. And sometimes the challenges we feel in our personal life can make it feel impossible to pray for anything out there. You know, there have been seasons where I've felt challenged in my own life, and I thought, I can't bring myself to pray for healing in that person's life when I'm experiencing sickness here. Sometimes it's hard when you feel just under pressure and really struggling to lift your gaze and to pray for the church or pray for the city. Or dare to believe that God could do incredible things out there when you're living with so much pain in here. It's attention, And if you feel that here today, let me tell you, you're not alone. Many people feel that. I, I feel that. Many of you will know something of our story. Um, Some of you won't. My wife, uh, Helen, who's actually here today, she has chronic fatigue. And this has been a real struggle for her, uh, but also for us as a couple. In March 2012, um, she got sick and it was just a sinus infection. It was something that we just thought, this is easy. This will be gone in a week. We didn't even think to pray about it because it felt so small. Actually, we expected the symptoms to go away and many of them did. But what didn't go away was the lack of energy and her energy never really returned. So that means that for seven years, the last seven years of our 10 years living in London, one of the big defining challenges we've had to face is praying that this thing would go away. And yet in seasons, sometimes she's been okay, sometimes it's been a challenge. Sometimes there have been seasons where she's not been able to do a lot at all, like go to work or get out of the house or even lift our daughter in and out of the cot. And it's been heartbreaking. And then, thankfully, there have been seasons where she's been able to work far more. She's been coming to church. And, and it's just ups and downs, ebbs and flows. Seven years of our 11 and a half years of marriage, this has been the defining thing we've had to pray about. And it hurts. And it's hard at times to pray for healing for others when you're not experiencing it yourself. And it's hard to pray for revival in a city when you're not experiencing it yourself. It's really difficult. I know how it feels. And yet, I think I would honestly say, there have been things that we have learned through this season that we couldn't have learned otherwise. You know, even the other week, I said to Helen, I'm really struggling to preach on persistence in prayer because I'm just not good at that personally. She said, what are you talking about? You have literally prayed the same prayer every day for seven years. I was like, Oh, yeah, that's true. I... <laughs> but I sort of hadn't thought about it like that. Partly because it just feels, it hasn't felt easy. And, And I feel like I struggle with prayer so much in my life. It wasn't actually until Helen got sick that we learned to pray together as a couple. This forced us to go to places in prayer we would never have got to otherwise. Now, of course, I wish it hadn't been that way. Of course, I wish we could have learned the lesson some other way. Like God just gave us a book that told us all the answers, something. And of course, I am still praying and believing for healing. I'm still believing that our prayers are like bits of a runway getting ready for God to answer that prayer. And I still long and hope that that will be the case. But honestly, I think that there are things that we have learned through this season we wouldn't have learned anywhere else. And my point is this. The tension of experiencing personal pain does not disqualify us from growing in persistent prayer. Actually, it's not just that God will teach us to pray in spite of our struggles. Sometimes he teaches us to pray through our struggles and because of our struggles. Now, the challenges you may be facing right now may be the very means by which God wants to help you to grow in persistent prayer. That's not to say that God wants you to be sick or wants you to be struggling. That's will. I'm not saying that. And actually, answers to the questions of suffering are too important to try and fit into throwaway sentences That's a topic for another day. But what I am saying is this. What you do with that tension is hugely important. Will you respond by giving up on prayer, or will you take it as an opportunity to go deeper and to trust God, as Anna did over decades of her life? I find the story of Corrie ten Boom really uh, just inspiring. She was an incredible woman, uh, a Dutch watchmaker who lived in the, well, from the 1920s. She, She was there through World War II, and when the Nazis invaded Holland in World War II, she... And her family opened their home to their Jewish neighbors who were fleeing for their lives. And she helped many Jewish families escape. Uh, She's just a remarkable example of faith and courage. In 1944, she and her family were arrested and they were sent to a concentration camp. And her sister, Betsy, died in that camp. And she only got out actually because of an administrative error, which was just remarkable in itself. What did she do? She went straight back home. She opened her home again to those who were fleeing for their lives. And then after the war, she had a home that was like a rehabilitation center for those who had spent time in the camps. And when asked how she had maintained her faith, her Christian faith through that period, she said this, when a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away your ticket and get off. You sit still and you trust the engineer. I think that's brilliant. Whatever you are going through right now, if you are going through difficult or dark times, don't take this as time to get off. Sit still, trust the engineer, and learn to grow in persistent prayer. And if you are going through good times right now, learn to grow in persistent prayer now so that that will sustain you, whatever comes down the track. We all need to grow in prayer. And if this is a challenge for you, I would really recommend this book by Pete Gregg, uh, God on Mute. It's just one of the best books I've read on prayer generally, but particularly how to pray during difficult times. So the first thing we see from Simeon and Anna is that they were persistent. But the second thing we see is this. They were perceptive. That is, they spotted what no one else spotted. Imagine the scene for a moment. Mary and Joseph, they come to the temple to, to do the The rituals that are required by the law. Two rituals. Firstly, the presentation of the child. As Jesus was the firstborn, uh, he would be dedicated. And so they'd hand him to the priest. The priest would bless him. They pay five shekels. Then the purification of the mother, which is when the mother brought this offering, uh, a lamb and a dove um, or possibly a pigeon. Uh, And they would bring this in order to say, Lord, I want to now be purified from this season and ready to engage again in worship. And this was all prescribed in the law. And actually it said in the law that if you couldn't afford to bring a lamb, then you could bring two birds. And that's what Mary and Joseph do. So we know that they were a poor family. They were nothing special to look at. You wouldn't see them coming. They didn't have an entourage. They were just normal people. The temple was an enormous place. The grounds covered the size of about six football pitches, so a huge space. I don't know how many people would have been there at the time. It would have been a crowded place. I have no idea how many babies Simeon and Anna had seen in their lifetimes. I mean, Anna had been there 60 years. Maybe tens of thousands, maybe 100,000 babies come and go. There was nothing special looking about Jesus. Like He was not wearing a baby grow saying, Mommy's little Messiah. It was not... like. Now, again, I patent that idea. <laughs> wow, I'm coming with all sorts of ideas today. But like, there was nothing special about them. They were just a poor, normal-looking couple coming to do what thousands of people had done before them. And yet, Simeon and Anna got to see what no one else saw. Everyone else missed it, including the priest. I mean, get this for a moment. The priest's job is to preach God saves, like week in, week out. And so then they bring this baby and they put him in his arms and he says, oh, what's the name? And he says, Jesus, which means God saves. And he goes, oh, great, nice name, nice name. Bless you, hand him back. Thought nothing more of it. Missed the very answer to every one of his sermons. And yet Simeon and Anna got to see what the priest missed. How was it that they were so perceptive? Well, let's see what it says. There was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was waiting for it. He was looking for it. It didn't just come by accident. He was proactively saying, I am waiting and longing in expectancy that this thing will happen. You know, when you wait for a bus, you're not just like, I think there may be such a thing called a bus and it may just turn up. No, you you stop at a particular place and you wait because when it works properly, you know these things arrive, they're due. And so I am looking for it because I don't want it to arrive and then go and I miss it. You're proactively saying, I am here in order for that thing to come and I'm going to get on board. And that's what Simeon is like. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. And it says he's righteous and devout. He's not just kicking back. He is engaging in prayer, looking for this thing to happen. It says the Holy Spirit was on him, which just didn't happen at this time. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon people for short periods of time to do a particular task. The Spirit didn't rest on people. That happens now after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. In the Old Testament, it didn't happen, and yet it did for Simeon he experienced more of the Spirit than anyone else in his generation did. And it said it had been revealed to him by the Spirit that he would not die before he'd seen the Lord's Messiah. Again, this didn't happen. From the end of the Old Testament book of Malachi to the New Testament, you've got 400 years where people believe that God had just stopped speaking through the prophets. And yet here is this man who gets to hear God say, you are going to live to see the Messiah. And actually, that's not just a one-time deal. On the very day that Jesus is getting dedicated, what does it say? Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. By that day, he was not in the temple. Anna was in the temple. He was somewhere else. And yet the Spirit said, hey, drop everything. Get to the temple. Today's the day. Today's the day you've been waiting for. And off he goes and he gets to see the Messiah. I don't know what he was looking for. If he was thinking, is it going to be a baby or a child or a fully grown adult? Like, I don't know how I'm going to spot them. But the Spirit gets him there and the Spirit opens his eyes. It's because of the presence of the Spirit that he gets to see things through the eyes of faith. Same is true of Anna. It says there was also a prophet Anna. Two reasons why this was unusual. One, there weren't prophets. Like for 400 years, there hadn't been a prophet. And yet Anna, weirdly, is not called a prophet because she saw Jesus. She was called a prophet already and she got to see Jesus. So she had not, like the rest of her generation, resigned herself to the idea, oh, God doesn't speak anymore. We'll just sort of get on with our jobs without him. She was proactively engaging with listening to God. Second reason why it's rare, actually, the rabbis say that there were 48 prophets in Israel's history and only seven prophetesses. There had only ever been seven female prophets in the whole of Israel's history. And this is incredible. The first person that gets to hear God's voice again is what? A woman, an elderly, single woman. And Luke puts this here at the beginning of his gospel because Luke, more than all the other gospel writers, wants us to know that Jesus' kingdom is totally different to any other kingdom. And in this kingdom, he turns cultural norms on its head. He picks the people you would not expect to hear God or to see God and he lets them in on the secret first. So these two people, Simeon and Anna, were perceptive enough to see what no one else did because they were in step with the Spirit. I don't know what would have happened if Simeon had dismissed God's whisper that day or if Anna had given up praying at age 82 or whatever. I don't think it would have derailed God's plans because God is bigger than that. But it might have meant that they wouldn't have got to see the answers to their prayers. Keeping in step with the Spirit helps us to spot when God is at work. It is way easier to be like the priests than the prophets. It's way easier just to get into the duty of just doing the faith stuff So you see the baby and you bless it and on its way and you miss what God is doing. In fact, it's tragic to think that we could, any one of us could spend years going to church, singing songs like we have, listening to sermons, thinking, yeah, sure, I'd like to see a great awakening, maybe praying for a week or two or a month and then just sort of drifting a little bit and lowering our expectations. And we could miss what God is doing amongst us. In fact, the biggest tragedy is that when you see the stories, you read the stories of times where God has moved in the past, the biggest objections have often come not from outside the church, but from within the church. When people are like, oh, I don't like this. This is getting a bit messy. It's sort of messing with the status quo. It is possible to become like the priests. I want to be more like the prophet. I want to be like Anna. I want to be like Simeon. I want to be looking expectantly. And then when God starts to move, I want to recognize him. I want to recognize him when no one else does. And I want to be declaring it to the world. I find Simeon so challenging. You know, he takes this baby in his arms and he says, essentially, I'm ready to die because God has kept his promise to me. I've seen the Messiah. Had he? I mean, he'd just seen a baby. That's all he'd seen. A baby that wasn't even talking or walking or doing anything very interesting yet. It's, it was just a little baby. And yet, Simeon's like, that's enough for me. That's enough. The story ends by saying the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was on him. But Simeon didn't get to see any of that. He just saw fragile little crying Jesus. He didn't see Jesus grow up to preach a single sermon or do a single miracle or heal a single blind man or tell a single story about the kingdom or talk about God's plan or talk about the availability of the Spirit. He didn't see Jesus' death and his resurrection and ascension and the story of Pentecost. He didn't see any of that. He just saw a little baby and he said, that's enough for me. One of my favorite poems is by the American uh, poet Denise Levitov. It's called Simeon, and it says this, with certitude, Simeon opened ancient arms to infant light. Decades before the cross, the tomb, and the new life, he knew new life. What depth of faith he drew on, turning illumined towards deep night. I love that poem. That sense that this guy hadn't Even seen the new life that was available. And yet he knew new life such that he was able to turn towards his death saying, I have seen enough to believe that God is doing great things now and he will do even greater things in future generations. I want to be like that. I want to be like Simeon. Eyes of faith right to the end of my life. I said in week one, my longing and prayer for my life and for this church is that it will be said of us, like it said of King David in Acts 13, that at the end of our days, when we lie down and go to sleep, we serve the purposes of God in our generation. I long for that. You know, David didn't get to see the long-awaited Messiah that would come from his bloodline. But what he did see was enough to make him write psalms and hymns and prayers that say, I am trusting that my prayers and my psalms are laying the foundations, are laying the runway for the Messiah to land. Centuries away. I'm longing for that. I am praying that we will be faithful in being persistent and perceptive. I am praying Habakkuk 3.2 over and over. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. I am longing for the revival stories of past to become revival stories of now and revival stories of the future. I'm not content with hearing stories about Wesley and Whitfield and Spurgeon and the Booths and many of the people we've talked about and thinking, oh, it's great that God did those things in the past. I want them now. I'd love my name to be one of those. I'd love people in this room to be part of that story. I'm longing to see things even now that feel like little baby Jesus, knowing that future generations will get to see them grow up into greater things. We need to be persistent in our prayers. And we need to have eyes of faith to spot what God is doing so we can say, this is it. This is what I have been waiting for. When God comes, I want him to find me ready. I want him to find us ready. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? When the Son of Man comes to Christchurch London, will he find faith in this room? Man, I really hope so. But I know, honestly, I will not be persistent or perceptive in my own strength because I just don't have that kind of self-discipline. I need the Holy Spirit. And I need to be part of a community of people filled with the Holy Spirit who are sparing one another on. I need you. Like it or not, I think you probably need me because we need each other to keep encouraging each other when we feel like we're drifting, when we're struggling, when it's like the tension of my own unanswered prayer make me feel difficult to come to a week of prayer for our church. I just can't deal with this. Other people come alongside and say, come on, let's do this together. We need each other. We need the Holy Spirit. Maybe the band can come back up. I, I love the story of George Muller, who we've told bits of his story at various times, but he was an amazing guy. And he was a great example of being persistent and perceptive. He kept on praying faithfully and stayed in step with the Spirit. And he did incredible things. He built orphanages that cared for 10,000 orphans. He established 117 schools that taught over 120,000 children. There's so much to learn from him in terms of social renewal. But in, in terms of spiritual renewal and prayer, he's an absolute giant. He prayed again and again and again, and things often happen like miraculously and pretty quickly as well. Read the stories of his life. It's, it's mind-blowing stuff. But one of the stories that moved me most is from the end of his life, where as he was coming towards the end of his days, he confided in a friend that he had been praying for two of his friends to come to faith in Jesus for over 50 years, and neither of them had budged at all. And his friend said to him, well, why do you keep praying? It doesn't seem to be doing a lot. And he said, because I just have this inner sense, this conviction, I've got to keep going with this. And the Lord would not give me that burden, he called it, unless he intended to save these people. So he kept on going. Shortly before his death, the first of his friends came to faith. Incredible. And so he kept on going right up to his deathbed. He was praying for the second one and then he died, having not seen that prayer answered. Shortly after that second friend came to faith. And yet he, like Simeon, went into his death knowing I have seen the faithfulness of God up to now. I've got courage to keep praying right until the end and I trust that he will do great things in my generation but also in future generations. Let's not give up praying. If we have to pray the same prayers over and over for 50 years, let's be willing to do it. And let's encourage one another to keep doing it. Let's not tire in prayer or give in to cynicism. Let's be like Anna Let's be like Simeon. Let's be like David. Let's be like Habakkuk. Let's be like George Muller and many other examples. Let's give ourselves to persistent prayer. Who knows what God could do through us as we do that?